I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Time to play some ball. Yes, today, as the Major League season gets underway, we're talking baseball. Not just peanuts and hot dogs, but also what America's pastime looks like here in Middle Tennessee. We're talking about the Negro League legacies, Little League champions, accessibility in the sport. That's all coming up. But first, Buster Olney is a senior writer for ESPN and reporter for ESPN's Baseball Tonight. He is a Vanderbilt graduate and a former baseball reporter for the Nashville Banner. Buster, thank you so much for joining us to talk about some baseball. Absolutely, Khalil. Great to talk with you. It's, you know, it looks like it's actually happening after a little bit of a lockout that was happening earlier in the offseason. So tell me, what are your most what are you most excited about as the major league season opens? Yeah, and you referenced the lockout. There was a lot of concern within the sport that the labor situation was going to keep baseball shut down maybe for a month or two months. In fact, a prominent agent told me back in December, look, I'll see you on Flag Day, which was June 14th. Mm. But they got that settled. Uh, they got the players into spring training. There's been a big rush for everybody to get ready uh, for opening day. And now as we go forward, it's about the young players. You know, there's always been a question about, you know, why doesn't baseball market uh, its players as well as other sports? The fact is, baseball has this incredible generation of young players, whether it's Juan Soto or the Washington Nationals, Ronald Acuna Jr., the Atlanta Braves. Of course, last year, so much attention on Shohei Otani. There are just a lot of exciting players in baseball these days. What about some of the changes to the rules? Like, what's different this year, and what's your sense of how fans are responding to that? Well, the most prominent change, I think, for casual viewers will be these devices that catchers are using now to signal pitchers. That's going to be really interesting. So they have a transmitter on the forearm of their left wrist. And so the catcher will punch the buttons, uh, you know, fastball outside. Mm -hmm. And there'll be a voice that'll be uh, in, uh, built into the cap of the pitchers through a listening device, as well as three other players. And so that all that time we've seen spent in the past... Uh, where the pitcher's giving the signs with his fingers, uh, you know, stepping off, maybe the catcher forgets the signs. That's all going to be streamlined now. Okay. And, you know, that'll, uh, I think, really change the game. Two other significant changes. One, the National League has never used the DH on a regular basis before this year. Moving forward, baseball will have a, the designated hitter used for all teams. And the last one is baseball expanded its playoff field this year from 10 teams to 12 teams. So if you're a a fan of a mid-market team, a small-market team, you might feel a little bit more hope going up against the big dogs like the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers. I really like the expansion of the playoffs. I know they did it for COVID, and I really appreciate that. It, I just think it adds more excitement and, like you said, more opportunity for fans to buy into the entire season and the playoffs. So let me, let's go back in time a little bit. You started covering our minor league team, the Sounds, for the Nashville Banner back in 1989. Take me back to that time. I mean, what was Nashville like as a sports town back then? Oh, well, first off, uh, you know, whenever the conversation has come up about whether or not there should be expansion of Major League Baseball, I always tell people, look, I'm biased, but Nashville is an unbelievable sports town, just a ravenous uh, appetite for sports. Uh, you know, at that time, the Sounds were one of the highest-drawing teams in the minor leagues. Uh, it clearly, <laughs> the city itself looks so different. When I go back there, 
I go on the same streets that I drove on before, mm-hmm. but you're looking around at the landmarks and they just don't look the same. It's so crowded. There's so much energy in the place. Uh, you know, a few years ago, I went to a Predators game and was just blown away, mm-hmm. <laughs> not only by that area and how that's built up, but by the energy level in that place. So at that time, it was a little bit more sleepy, not as much, uh, not as much, uh, uh, you know, not as many fans, but there was always that passion for sports. What was it like to be a sports reporter in that version of Nashville? Uh, well, at that time, you know, I'm a, I'm a young, you know, 24, 25 reporter uh, and getting my first uh, chance to talk to players. For me, it, it was just a great learning experience. You know, guys like Skeeter Barnes were on that team. He was an all-time great Nashville Sound. He, you know, now works as a coach uh, in the minor leagues. And to, to learn about, you know, the day-to-day in covering uh, a team, you know, the ups and downs, guys being promoted to the big leagues, guys being demoted. Uh, I always tell people that AAA is a unique level because the players are only you know one phone call away from being in the show in the big leagues and on the other hand they're also one phone call away from being down in the minor leagues in much less plus conditions you know there was no sport major sports team back in 89 so were the sounds a much bigger deal then there's no doubt uh you know and i've seen the interest in a lot of teams because you didn't have the titans you weren't competing with the predators you know, when I was going to Vanderbilt, that place was packed. Memorial Gym was packed every game. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, this uh, when I see attendance figures, you know, 6,000, 7,000, I think that just reflects the, the menu that if you're a sports fan, you can draw from. Do you have any good stories from your time as a beat reporter that you're at liberty to share? <laughs> so Skeeter Barnes uh, was the outfielder. He wound up playing uh, like six years in the major league, some with the Detroit Tigers. I grew up uh, in, uh, in central Vermont, and I always fashioned myself as maybe the greatest wiffle ball pitcher to ever come out of central Vermont. Okay. So uh, I, I talked a lot of smack with Skeeter, and one day he's like, okay, let's go out. And I, he, he had a wooden bat. I faced him in wiffle ball. I struck him out six times. He threw down the bat in anger as some of the other players uh, had a lot of fun at his expense. And I remember once I wrote a column uh, in 1989 that was very critical of a young uh, Yankees outfielder named Deion Sanders. Hmm. Deion didn't like that story very much. <laughs> and he sent a baseball up to the press box, which said on it, I still have the baseball, if you write like that your whole life, you'll always be a loser. Wow. I'm sure you have plenty of stories like that and wonderful <laughs> memorabilia. <laughs> you, know, you know, almost no one really covers minor leagues anymore, but you got a chance to do that. How did that experience shape your career as a sports writer? I, I think it made me understand in covering a whole team of players that you had to be attuned to everybody. You know, at that time, the, the best players on the team were guys like Jack Armstrong and Chris Hammond, who had long careers in the big leagues. And you naturally gravitate toward those guys. But I remember once it was a relief pitcher named Jeff Gray, who also pitched in the big leagues, who I hadn't talked to in a few weeks, and he had a bad game, blew a, blew a save. And I walked up to him, you know, after the game to ask him about it. And he goes, hey, when's the last time you spoke with me? That was educational for me to understand that you know, not only was it uh, smart to, to keep in touch with everybody uh, when you work in a beat and to have a feel for everybody, how everyone's feeling, but you know what? You can find sources all over clubhouses. So late years later, when I worked at the New York Times covering the New York Yankees, uh, my best clubhouse source was actually the 25th guy on the team, an infielder named Homer Bush, hmm. whose mind was anecdotal, and he could always relate these great stories to me, and I learned all that. 
uh, when I was covering the Nashville Sounds. You know, we're talking about Nashville. Your alma mater, Vanderbilt, has become a real college baseball powerhouse. What was Vandy baseball like back in the 80s? It was good, uh, but it certainly wasn't the powerhouse it is now. And when you, I go to Hawkins Field and I look at the area where they have these you know, beautiful seating and that incredible facility that David Price helped to create with his donation. I was just there a, a month ago. Uh, I, I'm just amazed. You know, um, same freshman class is, is, that I was in was uh, Joey Cora, who went on mm. to play in the big leagues with the Seattle Mariners. He's now a, a, the third base coach for the New York Mets. Um, it, it was just so different. In fact, you know, it, it was so uh, indistinct, I think, relative to the rest of, uh, you know, sports that I would always say that their true sports superstars uh, coming out of Vanderbilt were the sports writers. You know, guys like Tyler Kepner of the New York Times and Dave Shiner of the Washington Post. And so I always joke with guys like Dansby Swanson of the Braves, uh, you know, with David Price and others, Pedro Alvarez saying, you know what? You guys ruined it for us. Like the sports writers, Skip Bayless's, we used to be the stars coming out of Vanderbilt, but now it's the baseball players because that program is so great. You know, in big league circles, how does Vandy stack up when it comes to looking at like future draft prospects? Oh, it's not even close. They're they're number one. Uh, in fact, you know, some of my colleagues will always joke that, uh, you know, oh great, Buster's going to go into a clubhouse and and he's going to have a secret handshake with somebody. <laughs> you know, I'm in Atlanta as I speak with you now. I'm going to the Braves clubhouse tonight. And there's Dansby Swanson, and I'm going to talk to Kyle Wright. Uh, and and it, you know, <laughs> you definitely feel a special bond, and I always feel a pride. And it's not only because those guys have had success. But the thing is, is that they just have so many great people come out of that program, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it feels like that matter, you know, whether you bump into uh, a guy like Ryan Flaherty or, a, you know, a Pedro Alvarez or a Dansby Swanson, they're great people. Coach Corbin turns out great people. You mentioned Major League Baseball earlier, and you're biased a little bit, I would say. Maybe there is an effort to bring Major League Baseball here to Nashville, and I'm curious. What do you think the chances are of Nashville finally landing a big league team? So I own the family farm, or part of the family farm that I grew up on. I would bet the family farm that within 10 years, you will have Major League Baseball being played in Nashville. It's the site that everybody talks about, uh, I think, more than others that are going to be considered, whether it's Portland or whether it's Charlotte. Um, you know, the fact that the Titans have had so much success, the, the Predators have had so much success that... When people talk about atmosphere in an arena, they always refer to the Predators. I know Major League Baseball officials who've gone to Nashville to go watch those games because of what they hear. Um, you know, Major League Baseball has two franchises that are very troubled with their ballpark situations, the Tampa Bay Rays and the Oakland Athletics. Now that this uh, you know, next labor deal has been signed, th their ballpark situations are next on the docket. Once baseball gets that resolved, I have no doubt that the owners will say, okay, we're going to be ready for two expansion teams, uh, and I would bet the family farm that, uh, that Nashville will get one of those two teams. That is ESPN senior baseball writer and former Nashvilleian Buster Olney. Buster, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Khalil, thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to remember our city's Negro League team, the Nashville Stars. Do you have memories to share? Tweet us at... This is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. 
It's officially the start of baseball season. Now, Nashville is not exactly a baseball town. I mean, we've got the Nashville Sounds, whose opening day was Tuesday. They're one and two, by the way. And we have a few great college teams, but we don't have a Major League Baseball team, at least not yet. But there's a push to change that. The nonprofit Music City Baseball is a part of that effort. The hope is to bring an MLB team here and name it the Nashville Stars in honor of a Negro Leagues baseball team by the same name that was here back in the 1940s. Now, we'll get back to the Negro Leagues history in a minute. But first, let us head out to Music City Baseball, where our producer, Tasha A.F. Lemley, met one local baseball enthusiast during a tailgate for the recent UT Vandy game. It's not enough to call Skip Nipper a baseball fan. He's more like a baseball maestro, a historian, author, and a collector of stories. It was his dad who first taught him to play, and he continues that legacy as a member of a handful of groups, like the Nashville Old Timers Baseball Association and the Society of American Baseball Research. Skip says these groups keep him roaming within the circles of baseball people, which is where we find him today. It's a beautiful Friday afternoon, and Skip's tailgating ahead of the UT Vandy game with fellow baseball fan Chris Bacon. I sit here when Skip talks, I just sit there like a little kid and I listen because he knows he's forgotten more about baseball than I'll ever know about baseball. The keyboard just talks. I talk way too much. That's a problem. I talk too much. At this tailgate, Skip is in his element. There's a food truck and an atmosphere of joy and maybe a little post-winter relief. Skip collector of stories that he is, takes me on a journey through the crowd. This is Ro Coleman. You played at Vanderbilt. What's on your mind when, when Tim Corbin sends you up to the bat and you need a and he needs a hit and you give him one and you're on first base, what's the thought process there? I mean, for me, it's just baseball. On the baseball field, that's my playground. So it's like, it's no pressure. It's like having fun. It's like, I'm gonna get the job done. Yeah. Like, you pick the right guy, you, you know I'm gonna get it done for you. And what's in the future for you? Uh, for me, just continue to grow within the community, um, providing more opportunity within the game of baseball, um, creating more diversity, and just being where I need to be and helping others get to the places that they need to be. And this is going to be published, so when I ask you this question and you're going to say yes, you've decided never to move out of Nashville because you're so important to the community here. No, at, <laughs> no. at this moment, I'm, I'm, I'm here just, in Nashville. I'm just kidding. No, but I really, I really love Nashville. It, yeah, it's, it's growing a lot and I'm loving the way it's growing and I don't see myself moving or leaving anytime soon. On to some reminiscing with Dwight Lewis. He played at Tennessee State. Well, I played in the mid, in the mid 60s, late 60s. Uh, played a little baseball at Tennessee State. But I, I rode the bench mostly. <laughs> I was not a good hitter. So, uh, so when I played, it was fun. We played over at Halley, where Halley Park is located. I remember my first World Series. The Brooklyn Dodgers played the New York Yankees. Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, uh, Duke Snyder, Gil Hodges, Carl Ferrillo, Pee Wee Reese, all played for the Dodgers. And in that World Series, uh, a fellow named Sandy Ambrose, he was an outfielder. Yeah, outfielder. He went back to the wall and caught the ball uh, to make the, the game-winning catch, and he said, me no see wall, me see ball. <laughs> so, yes. Then Skip heads over to Mac Lipsy and his friend Helen Barrett. Earlier that you had seen a game at Sulphurdale, which was Nashville's old ballpark, which overlaps in the area of First Tennessee Park right now, it's in the same vicinity. 
I went there when I was 13 years old, and I'm 89 now. So that was 70-something years ago. My brother took me. And I remember two, th I was telling him, I remember two things. I remember how the right field went up a hill and the right fielder had to run up the hill to catch a fly ball. And I remember the ice cream bars they had in the stadium that were so good. I ate as many as I possibly could. <laughs> but help, talk to Helen, she's the baseball nut. Well, I wanted to play, but I was a girl. And that girls didn't play, okay? And then I played in the streets with the boys, and but when they had made you know lineups for teams and got uniforms, they didn't include me. And but I played anyway, and I learned to throw. And I was trying to. I'd stand in front of the mirror and I'd try to throw like Don Newcomb, who was a Dodger, the Brooklyn Dodger. I grew up in Brooklyn, and um, I never got over the perfect game that Don Larson threw. And I remember Jackie Robinson stealing home. And I just, I love to play, but listen to this. I still love baseball. I played with my kids. I would pitch batting practice in their little league games. And I, um, about 15 years ago, I was watching a TV program and there were some women like my age out in Hendersonville and they were playing ball. They were playing ball out there and I found the team National Senior Stars, and they, they said, well, where'd you play? I said, I never played, she, not in college, high school? No, we didn't have teams. They said, well, let me see you play at third, and they put me at third because I could make the throw to first. I had been warming up for that moment all my life, and I was 60 years old. It's stuff like this that makes Skip love the sport. To be able to hear those stories, it just kind of it, number one, it resonates with me deep inside because I love the game and I love to hear the stories. He says, really, it's the fans that are special. And hearing these stories keeps the hope for a major league team alive. I think that'll happen. I hope it happens in my lifetime because there's no timetable for it. But it will help a young little boy that played baseball in his early years. I'm going to be that little boy again through my grandchildren taking them to see a Major League Baseball game in Nashville one day. If the local effort prevails, that team would bear the namesake of one of our town's old Negro League teams. Joining me now is Dr. Harriet Kimbrough Hamilton. She's the daughter of baseball legend Henry Kimbrough, who played 17 seasons in the Negro Leagues in Nashville and Baltimore for the Elite Giants. She's published two books about him, and she joins us in studio now. Harriet, Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you with us. So tell me about your father, Henry Kimbrough. What kind of man was he? Well, my father was a no-nonsense individual. Uh, he was born in Nashville in 1912. So he grew up seeing a lot of uh, discriminatory uh, uh, adventures, uh, prejudice against uh, blacks, in Nashville, and that kind of made him a little hardcore in terms of dealing with people. And so he was a standoffish individual uh, that if he didn't speak, that meant he had nothing to say. And he would speak only when he had something to say, and then he would say it 
and then he would be done with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was that type of individual that kind of bore the burden of growing up in a harsh environment. He was the seven, seventh child of 10 kids. Uh, father died at an early age for him, and um, his mother had to support all of those kids and bring them up. So pretty, pretty harsh uh, background for him. How did he develop his love for baseball? Well, of course, during that time, baseball was it. There was no football. There was no basketball. Uh, when the kids got together to play, and all they needed was an empty field, and you could get rocks to be bases. I mean, I, we did that when I was playing with the boys. Uh, and you would play baseball. And so he could always go to a field, and there was always a game. Uh, and th- baseball was it. Every kid wanted to play baseball. So how did he go from playing sandlot ball to playing in the Negro Leagues? Well, during that time, um, we have to talk about a, a man called Tom Wilson. And Tom Wilson was a big, enthusiastic individual about about baseball. He loved baseball. He was uh, sort of an average ball player, but he loved baseball. But he was also a very successful businessman here in Nashville, considered one of the richest men in Nashville, black or white. And so he used his money to uh, buy a team in 1918, and later that team became the Nashville Eli Giants. And so during that time, uh, there were several uh, leagues in the country. And, of course, we have to, to give homage to uh, Rube Foster, who started the Negro Leagues because the black players were not allowed to play in Major League Baseball. And so with that being said, Tom Wilson began to build the Negro uh, Southern League. And so his Eli Giants played in the Negro Southern League and won 1921, 1922, 1929, I think. Uh, So the Eli Giants, the Nashville Eli Giants, were a powerhouse. You've written two books about your father. Your most recent book about him and his teammates is called Home Plate, Henry Henry Kimbrough and Other Negro Leaguers of Nashville, Tennessee. What inspired you to write about him? Well, the first book was about him because he had a story to tell. My father had a scrapbook, and the first book was called Daddy's Scrapbook. Hmm. And when I looked in the scrapbook, there were 60-year-old 60, 60 pictures of Roy Campanella, Satchel Paige, who played, who was intending to play in Nashville at one time. Uh brought here by Tom Wilson. And so uh, there were newspaper articles about him, his statistics, and then I began to understand that uh, Daddy just wasn't the plain Joe Blow playing baseball. He was was very good. He uh, qualified to go to seven All-Star games, and this this is against a bunch like a Satchel Paige and – Cool Papa Bell and and the like. So he was pretty good at this. And Tom Wilson 
recruited him to play for uh, the Nashville Elite Giants. How'd you feel when you realized that, hey, my dad is good? <laughs> I was shocked because, to me, uh, he was like uh, Clark Kent. Hmm. He never spoke about baseball. He never shared baseball with us, with uh, my brother and I. And he was just daddy and uh, the owner of Bill's Cab Company during that time. And it wasn't until after he passed that my mother gave me this, uh, you know, book that he kept. And I thought, well, uh, where did this come from? Where has this been hiding? But that was the kind of man he was. He, he didn't toot his own horn ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was about what was going on during that time, raising a family and running a business. When you were working on this book, I'm curious, like, how you put it together. Did you rely on stories from other players? Uh, Was it heavily about this scrapbook that your dad kept with all sorts of stats and info? Yes. I started with uh, the story of Tom Wilson. Well, of course, telling my dad's story of how he got into Negro League Baseball. And then it kind of unfolded when I began to see the stats uh, and yes, I interviewed several of the Negro leaguers that were still alive, and they had a lot of stories about my dad. A couple I couldn't print, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't print. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, they were uh, good stories because, uh, and, and I'll share one. Uh, one of the uh, uh, Jim Zapp, one of the players, Jim Zapp, played with my dad. He's he's no longer here. But he said, you know what, I played with Kimbrough, and uh, a lot of the players were very, uh, uh, they were scared of him because he had a temper. Mm -hmm. My father also had a temper, and that's why he was quiet, because he didn't want to explode. And so he said, I got along with Kimbrough. All you had to do was do your part in the game. When he would get mad is when people would mess up. And he had a problem with them. And so the other players took that as a personal attack instead of a uh, an attack on them as a player. And so uh, a lot of the information about my dad, if you read in all of the Negro League books, they will call him mean, aloof, hard to coach, hard to get along with. And he wasn't about that. He was about winning. He wanted to win, and he felt like everyone should have that type of attitude, and they all didn't, of Mm -hmm. course. They enjoyed themselves. My dad didn't enjoy himself. He took baseball like a business. I'm here to win. I'm here to play good. I'm here to play hard, and that was the kind of man he was. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake-Alona. We're talking about our city's Negro League with Dr. Harriet Kimbrough Hamilton, daughter of baseball legend Henry Kimbrough. Now, your first book, Daddy's Scrapbook, we mentioned it. And, you know, I would love to see if you would mind reading us a a passage from your book. Well, unfortunately, I brought the second book. Okay. (laughs) But it's just as good because it's more about the Negro Leagues here in Nashville and all of the players that made Nashville their their home here. Okay. Their pictures in there, their positions, what teams they played, their career. So I felt that that was important. Even but better. The passage that I would like to read is about 
um, Tom Wilson's park. Tom Wilson was the first African-American to build and own his own baseball stadium park. Mm-hmm. And so this was the vibe of the park. Mr. Wilson went on to build the first black-owned baseball stadium in the South. For the biggest games, the stadium was described as, and I am quoting from a a person that wrote about uh, this event, a social gathering place where everybody came to visit as well. Sunday was a big day. The women would have on their Sunday church dresses and all the girls would be dressed up in their best clothes. There was an area along third base side of the field where teenage patrons congregated during the games. There was no better place in Nashville to meet girls. Today, an historic sign on 2nd Avenue on the south side of Nashville marks the spark of the former stadium. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I had no idea. It was a social gathering uh, for African Americans. And, of course, baseball was in everybody's uh, mind. And, of course, having a, a African American team here, that was the biggest thing. It's, it, it was as big as a concert if we would have, you know, Snoop Dogg come down. Not that I'm a fan of Snoop Dogg, okay? <laughs> but. <laughs> he was just here. I, I know. I didn't go. But <laughs> I'm saying that. It was that big a deal yeah. for the black community, and the word got around. Uh, north, south, east, west, it didn't matter where you lived. They all came to see uh, this team and other teams that came. It was 75 years ago that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers, which opened a door for greats like Willie Mays to jump from the Negro Leagues to the MLB Do you have a sense of how your dad reacted when Jackie Robinson made that leap to the big leagues? They all were very proud. Uh, I spoke with each one of them, and that was one of my major questions. How did you feel about Jackie Robinson and Major League Baseball? They were all proud. Now, there was one, I won't say his name, he said he thought that would never happen because he didn't think that the the whites in the baseball in the country would allow ever allow a black to play a game with them. And of course we saw the uh brutal treatment of Jackie Robinson and what he had to go through. And I asked most of them and I asked my dad. I said, "Could you have done what Jackie Robinson did?" And he was very frank about it. He said, "No." Because, and I'm quoting, somebody would be in the jail and somebody would be under the jail. End of quote. (laughs) That's right. You don't mess with Mr. Kimbrough. One question for you. We had Jackie Robinson break that barrier, but then there were greats like Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson, which people in baseball argue that these are some of the greatest baseball players to walk the planet no matter what league they played in. How did the men you interviewed feel about that? Like these legendary players didn't have the opportunity to play on the world's biggest stage. They uh, did not have an expectation that that would ever happen. And when it did, they felt good because they were very proud that they were keeper of the flames. That's Mm -hmm. what I call it. They kept 
the dream alive for the Jackie Robinsons and the others, Roy Campanella, that played with my father on the Baltimore Elite teams. They kept the flame alive and going for them. So they felt very responsible and proud. What do you want people to understand about the Negro League and what it means to Nashville? Well, Nashville was uh, a vital place of growth for African-Americans. You can't say that in some parts of the country. Mm -hmm. But uh, as a born Nashvillian, I'm very proud of it being a progressive city, very progressive. And so it was seen as a progressive city to the blacks during that time when Tom Wilson had a team. And so they knew that this being better times were coming, uh, that there was always hope, and they got to see some of the best in the league he, right here in Nashville. So that gave them uh, hope that life would be better for African Americans and that things will grow and flourish in Nashville. And they did. That is Dr. Harriet Kimbrough Hamilton. She is a TSU professor and a baseball historian and author of the book Home Plate, Henry Kimbrough and Other Negro Leaguers of Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely fantastic. Really appreciate you being with us. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about accessibility in the sport, starting with a trip out to Springfield to meet a new special leads baseball league. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Can you hear me? A few hundred people are gathered at J. Travis Price Park for the city of Springfield's 2022 baseball and softball opening ceremony. This year we began our Springfield Buddies baseball program. With the hope for getting enough players for one team, we were blown away at the amount of participation this received. We have 40 registered players in this league, giving us four teams in our first ever season. That's right, come on. The Springfield Buddies League is a volunteer-based adaptive sports league and one of the few opportunities in Middle Tennessee for athletes with special needs. Interest exceeded all expectations, and the players span in age from 3 to 64. Andy Smith is a head coach. He says his son Aiden is excited. He's asked me every day for like the last three months, is it time to go play baseball yet? Is it time to play baseball yet? I'm like, it's coming, buddy. My red part is a long, good thing because I love it so much because I'm ready to play. Ethan Gatley is another player in the Buddies League. He and his mom, Jennifer, are new to town, and they were part of an adaptive league back in California. Hey, Coach Ethan. Why? Are you excited to play baseball? Did you miss playing baseball? Can you use your words? You excited? Excited. To be able to get out, out to the field again, to be able to be around, you know, other adults and children with, you know, the same struggles that we go through and to be around the parents too, to become like a community. It's just kind of exciting to get back out, back out on the field, especially after COVID that shut us down for two years. Seth Owen is athletic programmer for the city of Springfield. Baseball is important because it is a game that you can most mimic to the game of life. Uh, baseball is, a game of failure. If a, if a baseball player in the major leagues fell 70% of the time, 
they're a Hall of Fame quality player. So that teaches you that you're going to fail, and you need to be able to get back up. You need to be able to hold your head up and uh, keep on moving through life because there's going to be another opportunity that you get that you need to be able to, to jump on and make it is, you know, make the most of it. This is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. Opening day for the Springfield Buddies is April 18th if you want to show these athletes some support. Joining us now are a few Little League coaches, Ronald Gooch Gooch from East Nashville and Joey Hale, who coaches in Goodlettsville. Welcome to This is Nashville. How's it going, man? Doing all right. Really a pleasure to have you guys with us. So, Gooch, what got you into coaching Little League Baseball? Man, I think uh, it was a couple years ago, uh, East Nashville Athletics had just been revitalized from the flood from 2011. Uh, and we were previously just Neely. Uh, and a couple of my kids that I was coaching in soccer at the YMCA uh, decided to play baseball over there uh, at East Nashville Athletics. And obviously they needed a coach. Uh, and I was excited to come over uh, and to get into the sport. Uh, and to continue to grow the community over here in East Nashville. Uh, and I've been here uh, with East Nashville Athletics for the last 11 to 12 years and, and have really enjoyed my time getting to know all our families and, and all of our kids here. How about you, Joey? Uh, it's pretty much about my dad. I mean, he's coached at Parkwood, which is back where East Nashville Little League used to be Jess Neely back in the day. <clears throat> so they played against Jess Neely all those years. So I pretty much followed him around. He started coaching in the early 70s and um, pretty much retired from Parkwood around 82, 83, 84. And pretty much my whole childhood memory is just following him around the state tournaments and Dixie World Series and stuff like that. And when I got older, my son started playing ball. Uh, he wanted, you know, my dad to coach his team. So I started coaching with my dad and been coaching ever since you know it's just like a passion i guess it's just ingrained in me from him you know and i'm so thankful that i get to do this so joey you've coached teams that have made appearances at the little league world series tell me what yeah. was that like that you know my dad got to experience the first one in 2012 when we played japan for the whole thing and i remember one of the guys up there one of the the beat writers or something asking him the difference and and how it was for him because he always wanted to have a chance to go to Williamsport and and take part in that tournament and he said man you could roll up all the other tournaments I've ever coached in into one and it still doesn't compare to going to the Little League World Series this is that great it's just it's an unbelievable experience I, I think back then I said it was like Christmas on steroids or something because mm -hmm. the way the ESPN treats the kids. Uh, they get the royal treatment. They get all kinds of free gear, you know, from the bats that you see on TV and the helmets and catcher's gear and cleats and Oakley sunglasses, you name it, they get all that stuff. And it's just it's two weeks of bliss for the kids. And, uh, and we had the fortune of being able to go twice. So, you know, the second time around was just as, as uh, exciting for me uh, because you never know when you're ever going to get back again. So you have to, you know, enjoy every moment as, as best you can. Did Is that a message you, like, referred to your players? Like, hey, we're here. Enjoy this moment. It'll be one that you hold with you for the rest of your life. Absolutely. You know, my dad, you know, he coached for 20-plus years, and he, he always told me that 
if you make it to that level, there's no more pressure because you're there. So the hard part is getting there. Once you're there, enjoy it. You know, don't go up there and, and be serious and, and you want to win, but you, you want to enjoy the experience too because the, the problem with youth sports in general is, is the parents and, and the adults. They take it way too serious and then it makes the experience for the kids terrible. And when you go up to like Williamsport or something like that, you do run into coaches that are just like wound so tight that they can't enjoy the experience and their players can't either. So it's just best just to be relaxed, cut up with the kids, have a good time, let them enjoy the experience. And then, you know, they'll have something to look back on, you know, years later as, man, that was one of the best things I ever did in my life was going up there and doing that. So, uh, you know, it's just, for me, that's just what I want to do for kids is try to give them the best experience possible. I'm thinking about what we heard from Seth Owen in Springfield, how the game of baseball mimics life, like like you just referred to, Joey. You know, Gooch, when you're coaching kids, I can imagine that there's so many opportunities for teaching life lessons and how to build community. Tell me about that experience for you. Well, I think the opportunity for us, um, I mean, and, and Joey experiences uh, in Gillisville as well. Uh, uh, baseball is one of those sports that brings kids together uh, who, you know, in, in some cases may not look like one another, uh, different uh, economic and financial backgrounds. Um, all the demographics are put uh, in that dugout, in that outfield, in the infield, uh, and for at least an hour and a half, uh, you know, those boys uh, are a boys and girls uh, are able to uh, just take what they know uh, and express it and express it through athletics. Uh, I've seen so many times, you know, uh, I've seen families. I mean, when I say families, you know, families of three, four, five, six kids run through our league and they just clinch on other families and that becomes your next uh, carpool person, uh, you know, or, or that, that that becomes, you know, your new real estate agent. Uh, and and especially over here in East Nashville here recently within the last two years, uh, we, we had a very tragic tornado run through our community uh, that all, the only thing it did was made it stronger. And, and the baseball league was also here for uh, our family and our kids to give us some sort of normalcy uh, once we were able to break through that. And then we also had to fight through COVID. So uh, our children and our communities are a lot more resilient than what we give them credit for. I think the fragility of it comes from uh, as Joey mentioned, uh, people who are a little bit wound up and tight uh, just about life in general, um, you know, you got to enjoy every moment. And so uh, the opportunities to create community here, I mean, they happen every single day with every single thing that we do. You've both been coaching Little League Baseball for a while, and you've seen former players grow up. Do you keep in touch? Joey, do you keep in touch with your former players? Uh, absolutely. One of them is coaching with me this year, Seth Marlin. He uh, he was on the 2012 Little League World Series team. He was our backup first baseman and pitcher. Uh, he was probably five foot three, five foot two back then, one of the smallest kids on the team. And today, he's six foot two. And this is this year is the 10 year anniversary of that team going to the World Series. And uh, so they had opening ceremonies for him. He got to throw out the first pitch. Jason Brown, who was our center fielder. Uh, his dad is Kip Brown, the head coach of the Beach uh, High School basketball team. He came back and uh, threw out a first pitch. So, oops, that may be a sort of thing. No, so uh, sorry about that. 
Jake Rucker just got drafted by the Minnesota Twins. I saw him at our state tournament last year in Gallatin. Him and his little brother, Carson, came by to visit. Uh, heard from Luke Brown. Luke Brown's at Austin P right now pitching. Uh, heard from um, Brock Myers. He's still at Tennessee Tech pitching. And a few others here and there. You know, they they come and go. They come to the park, and a lot of them will talk to you and like, hey, Coach, how's it going? And you got to kind of look at them for a minute just to remember who, mm-hmm. who they are when they come back because they change so much when they get older. But, yeah, I keep in touch with a lot of them. I just want to let everybody know Joey works as a firefighter, so – it was potentially he would have had to go and handle and be a hero. Uh, let me ask this quick question to you, Gooch. You know, how can we make baseball more accessible to everyone? Uh, man, you know what? Uh, I, I think that's that's one of the uh, ongoing questions uh, that every league has, right? Um, you know, I think one of the things that, that leagues need to strive to do really well uh, is to find engagement points, right? find, you know, where where can we most engage the most amount of people, the most diverse group of people, uh, and, and how can we make it relatable to them? Uh, a lot of times, uh, as uh, uh, I think it was uh, Dr. Harriet before us, uh, spoke to uh, the lack of African-American players that are currently uh, playing baseball right now. Open it up. I've got yeah. a couple of seconds left. I've got to jump in there. That's Go Little ahead. League baseball yeah. coach Ronald Gucci. He was joined by Joy Hale from the Goodville, Goodlessville Little League. Thank you both for being with us. Now it's time for me to hop out of my host chair and into the passenger seat. Join me as I take a shotgun ride with Mark Gent, lifelong baseball fan. At nine years old, I sat down in my family. Uh, living room and I watched my first baseball game. Me and my brother watched game six of the 1986 World Series when the ball rolled through Bill Buckner's legs. I was that watching was that game. Fir- that was the first baseball game I watched. With two out, three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first, behind the bag, it gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight and the Mets win it. Watching that game when that ball rolled through Bill oh, Buckner's legs, I jumped out of the building. I still remember jumping up and down in my parents' living room. And, the, you know, over the last few years, I met both Mookie Wilson and Bill Buckner. Want to take a ride real quick? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Seeing how much you love the game, how does that make you feel watching, you know, your love of the game kind of transfer over to your kids? Mm. So it's been it's been really interesting. Um, it was never something that I pushed. It's something that's just naturally happened. So they're all Dodger fans. I'll just say that. But they're at different phases of being baseball fans. Um, the boys follow it, you know, kind of generally. What's really surprised me is Brooklyn. Uh huh. She knows where her name came from, from my love of the Brooklyn Dodgers that I suggested to my wife. And she miraculously said, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. Something clicked in her that summer of 2020 during the pandemic where she just fell in love with baseball and became a rabid Dodgers fan. She is a bigger fan at 13 than I was at 13. And I was a pretty big baseball fan, but um, she knows the headlines. She knows our starting lineup before I do. She'll listen to the games on the radio late at night. Dodger, I mean, if you're a Dodger fan and you live in Tennessee, and you want to watch and listen to games, it's a long six months of sleep deprivation. <laughs> you know, 75% of your games start at 9 o'clock. Sometime towards the end of 2020, after the season, after the Dodgers won, she was like, Dad, I want to go to the All-Star game in two years. 
I'm like, wow, that's okay. That that's great. Um, we got to find out how to finance this, and because she knows all about my business model was simply a fan, and I'm like, so yeah. Brooklyn, um, I, I can't afford to take you because you would cut into my profit margin, <laughs> and I would have zero profit margin. I said, and I also can't build your cost into the trip like mine is because then I might price some people out. I said, but. I could cut you some deals and <laughs> I won't charge you my service charge. You can stay in my hotel room that's paid for. We can do airline miles and sweet Brooklyn. She started changing, saving her money. And I was like, it'll probably for you. I cut all that out. You're probably talking $1,500 and she's 11 at the time. And would you believe it? Here we are three months out from the game and she's got like 1200 bucks saved. And if that park had been open, I was going to, uh... Do you have two gloves? Yeah. No, Let's no, no, do for it. Sure, yeah. I brought one for you. Sweet. All right. You get my glove from childhood. Okay. I've had that since I was like 11 years old. And I got my son's glove. <laughs> that, uh, the only... Let's see. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's just fun playing the game of catch. Yes, it is. It's been a while, man. It's been a while. Y'all, that was a fun game of catch. It has been a while, trust me. Thanks for tagging along with me for that ride with Mark Gent. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. We've got a great lineup of shows in store for you next week. Monday, we're spending the hour rounding up domestic violence resources and checking in one year after the tragic killing of Marie Varsos. Then we'll revisit our city's history and poetry and find out just how Nashville became a mural town. Don't forget to tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Farouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Mr. Solfordell himself, Kara Zahn, Seth Owen, Aria Gerson, Blake Farmer, and Tony Gonzalez. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you Monday, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>